Hi everyone, welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast, where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm Michelle Barakoff, and this month I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Australia's number one young adult fiction author, Lynette Noni. The Prison Healer is the first young adult fantasy novel I've read in quite a while, and I just loved diving into the amazing world that Lynette created. I could visualize the prison and the characters so vividly, and let me tell you, Lynette knows how to keep you turning the pages. I felt like I was in very capable hands throughout the entire novel. Now, it doesn't surprise me one bit that she's the number one YA fiction author. When I ran the competition on my socials to give away a copy of The Prison Healer, it absolutely went off. She has some very passionate and dedicated readers. I was really sad that I could only give one copy away. Lynette and I talked about writing YA and fantasy, of course, but she also spoke about the process of planning and writing a series, what inspired the world of The Prison Healer and how she goes about creating the distinctive layered characters. I reckon her experience and advice on those things really transcends genre. I got so much out of our chat and I really think you will too, no matter what genre you write in. So a little bit about Lynette. After studying journalism, academic writing and human behavior at university, Lynette finally ventured into the world of fiction. She's now a full-time writer and the best-selling author of the six-book young adult fantasy series, The Medoran Chronicles, as well as a second best-selling and award-winning series called Whisper. Lynette won the 2019 ABIA Award for Small Publishers Children's Book of the Year, along with the 2019 Gold Inky Award. She's currently collaborating on a project with number one New York Times best-selling author of the Throne of Glass series, Sarah J. Maas. The first book in Lynette's new series, The Prison Healer, which we're talking about today, was released globally in April this year, with the sequel, The Gilded Cage, coming in October, which is this month. So look out for that one. I hope you enjoy listening to my deep dive with Lynette Noni into her best-selling novel, The Prison Healer. Enjoy. Lynette, it is absolutely delightful to be speaking to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, this novel, The Prison Healer, what a page turner and what an ending. I did not see that massive twist coming at all, like complete surprise. Um, I have the next book in the series, uh, The Gilded Cage, burning a hole on my bedside table, and I'm pretty sure I know where my weekend is going to disappear to. We will talk about writing a series a bit later, but I wanted to first talk about the genesis of this novel, The Prison Healer, and what came first for you, the premise and the plot or a particular character? Uh, It's an interesting question because it was kind of... Um, if we're talking chronologically, it would have been a character, but I didn't realise that at the time until a few months later, in which case it was actually the setting. Uh, so at the beginning of 2019, I was travelling and I was overseas and uh, just in passing, I met this young woman and we had a meal together. Like as you travel, you kind of just meet people and you talk with them quickly. And and for some reason, it's such a safe place that like, you get to know each other really quickly yep. um, kind of, and, and then you never see them again. Yeah, um, <laughs> we've all had those, I think. Yeah. Um, so this woman, I don't even, I, I don't know her name now. I don't know if I knew her name then, but she just 
told me about her story about how she'd grown up in, in, in an impoverished nation. And when she was a teenager, her father was seen shaking hands with a member of an opposing religious faction. And this um, this country was really kind of at war with a lot a lot of different a lot of different reasons. And he was actually just purely for shaking hands. Uh, he was uh, taken to jail to prison. Um, and not just him, they actually came up to her entire family. They were considered, you know, political prisoners. Uh, so she, her mother, her sisters were taken to a different prison. Uh, her father was taken to this torture prison. She was taken to like this kind of like a a limbo waiting prison. And they thought that they would be let out. You know, it was a misunderstanding. They thought they'd be let out one day, two days, three days passed. Five years passed before she was actually ever let out in the world. Um, and her father, like, she hadn't had any contact with him. She had no idea if he was alive. She had a couple of other siblings on the outside. I think they were brothers. And because they were over 18, they thought that the government would come for them. So they fled the country before anyone. But the, the women and the children, they thought they'd be safe. Anyway, her story, it was just one of those moments where you realize just how privileged you are where you grow up and that this kind of thing, at least where I grew up, it didn't happen, um, not widely anyway, not here in Australia. Uh, we have our own injustices, we have our own problems, but like that is just, it really hit me and and I, I think that's the word I will repeat, but that injustice of her story just kind of stayed with me. Um, but again, it was a fleeting moment, a passing time. I went on like in a different direction to her, like physically. I went on in my travels. She went on in her travels, um, and that was kind of it. It lingered in my mind as a wow. That was you know what a life she's lived, and and it was also her agency while she was in the prison. Once she realised she was there to stay, she's like, what can I do? What can I do? And so she taught herself English, and she um, she uh, cozied up to the guards so that they would like her and and treat her and her her parent mother well and. Um, and she, you know, she started to like study and learn and do what she could and just her incredible um, resourcefulness and everything about her. I was just really like, wow, what a, what a, what a human being, you know. Mm. Um, but anyway, so I continued my travels. I, I came back home. I then went on tour, like book tour. I had the final book in my six book series release. And so that was a you know, like, I think it was like 16 days of event after event after event. And it's just my brain just went straight back into work mode. Um, and a couple of months later, uh, so that was in around January, February of 2019 that I met her. But then in around May, June, I was traveling uh, in Australia. I was over in Perth for the Scribblers Festival, which is a, um, a children's literary festival, um, which is just such a fantastic uh, event um, and I had a day off in between the sessions that I was speaking at and everyone just kept telling me you need to go out to Fremantle prison and like you just just the amount of people that told me I just kept saying why do I look like the <laughs> person that just likes to visit prisons willy-nilly um, but the amount of people that told me and I was like okay all right I'm now too curious not to go um, and so I went out and Fremantle Prison is this um, it's a heritage listed uh, prison it, it no longer has any inmates but you can do tours and so I went in and what really appealed to me was this really cool uh, they had this tunneling tour and so what and I was like you know cool adventure fun let's do this the prisoners at Fremantle they had to dig tunnels to supply water for the prison and then later for the township of Fremantle when there's a big storm that caused all these problems and so what I did was I did this tunneling tour and you go down these terrifying ladders deep into the earth and you walk through these tunnels that are like really narrow and scary and then even scary you hop in this like paddle boat and go through the ones that are partially submerged and it was the most amazing experience and while I was in this boat deep beneath this prison paddling along and the like 
I was going to say the guard. The, the tour, the I was going to say, I feel like I've read this story somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Well, while I was in this little canoey thing and the guide turned off all the lights, like we only had headlamps, but she's like, everyone turn off your lights and see what it would have been like for the prisoners when they had like, you know, their lanterns went out or whatever. And it was just like, I'd never felt like so alone and isolated because it was just dark and you mm. couldn't hear anything. You didn't know if anyone was with you. You had no idea how to get out if someone had just disappeared. Um, and I just had this like this like light bulb moment of I, I'm feeling so much right now and I need to put this and this space into a book. Um, and so when I was back above ground, I was so, you know, intrigued by the rest of the prison that I went back that night and I did a night tour. Um, it was actually a ghost tour, but I missed all the scares because <laughs> I was looking at like the cells and the flogging post and the hangman's noose, which was so eerie. And hearing these tales of these, not even tales, these actual real life stories of these yeah. prisoners. Um, and it just kind of... I don't know how the two things mesh, but, you know, the injustice that I felt in the prison linked my mind up to this woman who I'd met and the injustice of her story. And so I kind of merged the idea of of someone who had been wrongly imprisoned um, for a length of time for, through no fault of their own. And and like this, this concept just kind of spiraled and then obviously mine became more about the fantasy elements there's magical trials and um and a lot there's like a, a sickness that goes around the prison and all these other kind of things but those so it wasn't really the plot that came to me it was more being in this prison and just feeling the world and then remembering i don't want to call her character but the woman who i'd met and like her story and then forming my own creation out of it that is a very long-winded answer <laughs> no it's all good it's all it's all good I think people love hearing about the inspiration behind novels especially when they're fully invested in the characters and the the world that you've built what you were just describing then about the tunnels that almost word for word is what you've written I mean I definitely drew inspiration, like the, the prison that I created, Zalandov Prison, it does the, one of the, it is a labour prison, it's horrible, it's a death prison, and, but one of the labour things is that the prisoners all out the water, mm-hmm. and I definitely, yeah, I definitely, Fremantle is by that, absolutely, there's other parts of like, there's quarriers, and there's people, you know, lumberyard people, and there's, you know, other awful allocations that people have that I thankfully didn't have to witness <laughs> to get, but that's central part of the tunneling there was definitely yeah from that from purely because I was there and I just felt so much so yeah yeah yeah. and then the character of Kiva came from where well I don't sit down before a book and map out a character I'm not I know a lot of authors who do that they'll write a list of attributes they'll write a list of personality traits they'll write a list of you know who this person is going to be I am the kind of writer I like to get to know the character as I'm writing them because I feel like as a reader you get to know the character as you're reading about them. So um, the voice of the character has to come to me pretty strongly and so Kiva as a character, I I knew the basic elements of her. I knew that she had been in prison for 10 years. I knew that she, uh, the prologue in The Prison Healer, you can see that she's close with her family. You can see that her father um she's with her father and her younger brother when these soldiers come and take them away and it's only a short prologue you don't at that point know uh what is going on why they're being taken away what is happening and then some other devastating things happen uh in that moment that you don't find out until later but so those kind of things they were my basis for knowing her but i also had to consider who i wanted her as a character in the sense that 
Um, I have two other series that I've written and one of them, the Midoran Chronicles, the main character, Alex, she, she's a warrior and like she learns to be a fighter. She learns combat and she learns all kinds of things like that. She's not very good to start with. She has no idea what she's doing, but over the course of the six books, she, um, she really learns and she grows into their physically strong character. Uh, in my Whisper st- series, there's a magical element to it that is like a magical kind of strength of this character. Um, there's an inner strength, but there's also that physical manifestation of that. And so I wanted coming into the prison healer something a bit different. I didn't want a character who would be physically strong. Um, I mean, there's so many different kinds of strengths. And I thought this character, you know, she's survived in the worst kind of place for 10 years and she's somehow kept her humanity. And not only that, she she's the healer, like she's the prison healer. She works hard to, uh, like, I, talk, I mean, a mundane healer. So she works hard with herbs and and like this little tiny little garden that she has to kind of create these things to try and save these people who are, some of them are are good. There's an 11 year old boy who is just a sweetheart and again, wrong place, wrong time. And he gets stuck there. I love Tip. He's one of the best characters, isn't he? Tip is just this little way of sunshine. He's He's probably the only thing that like, you know, this book is really quite dark, but then he bounces into the room and he just smiles and you're like, okay, everything's okay. I can get through this next chapter. (laughs) Um, But so Kiva, I needed the balance of that. And so, you know, there are other prisoners who deserve to be there. They're murderers. They've done horrible things, but she still treats them all. And so I wanted her strength to be this compassion. And so when I was creating her as a character, that was really kind of what I honed in on. And I used that to get to know her and to guide her, um, her I guess her dialogue, but also her character and and her the arc of everything that she would do next. And so that was kind of how her creation came about. I can see that because when you read the Prison Healer, we've got those three prongs really of the character, haven't you? What she says to others, what she says inside her own head, and what she does, and all of that points to somebody who's really compassionate and against the odds and despite people being absolutely awful to her at times she has that inner goodness so yeah Yeah. it's a really great example I think of how you take those uh, craft elements and create a character thank you (laughs) so let's keep going with the characters they all have very strong distinctive voices how do you find the voice for each character and how do you go about differentiating them um, well, I think I think a lot of it does come back to getting to know your characters. So if we use that, I mean, we just talked about Tip, who's this yes. little 11-year-old boy. And so, you know, when I considered his character, I knew I wanted him to be a light in the darkness of this place. He's been there for three years. Shortly after his arrival, his, he came in with his mother because his mother was accused of stealing and he wouldn't let her go. And so the guards dragged him with her. Um and this is just how unjust this world is, um, at least at this point in time. And so, you know, he was dragged in there. His mother died very shortly afterwards. And uh, Kiva kind of, I don't know, he he's kind of like a little barnacle. Like he kind of attaches himself to, to Kiva especially, and especially because he was allocated work in the infirmary with her. And the thing about Kiva is, yes, I said before that she's very compassionate, but she's also extremely guarded. She has lost too many people. She won't let anyone in. She refuses to 
kind of, I mean, you can tell that she's fighting. You can tell that she adores like this young boy, but at the same time, she's so adamant to keep him at arm's length because in her yeah. mind, everyone is going to die. She's going to lose. She's already lost so much her family. And, you know, she sees like people at Zalendorf at this prison tend to have a lifespan of six to 12 months at best. And, um, and so she just doesn't want that hurt anymore. But Tip is kind of this little character who just will wiggle his way in there and just latch on. And so he's done that with Kiva. And so to create his voice, um, I wanted, you know, it's almost like, and I know he's a lot older, but I really kind of imagine, um, what's his name, Tom, who plays Spider-Man, Peter oh, Parker. Oh, yes, yes. And, and he's just like... He's, I know he's older and I know he's, you know, and, as, and even as an actor, I know he's older, but like he really manages to channel this boyish kind of playfulness and that everything's always going to be okay no matter what. And that's kind of like tips a lot younger, but he kind of has that, he's in the worst place he could be, but he's like, I'm going to play a prank on the guards. He's constantly, constantly optimistic, constantly bubbly. And, and, you know, when he has to like go and find these rats, he's like, Oh, rats to play with. Yay. It's like, no, that's <laughs> gross. Don't, don't be excited about that. Um, but he, yeah, so he was just, he was such an easy character to write because he's just, it was so easy to write this constantly happy character. Um, and over the course of the series, I know we're going to talk about series a bit later, but over the course of the series, it was really interesting to play with those threads and to see what might push his boundaries in other circumstances, especially, um, I don't want to give any spoilers, but especially later in the series when circumstances are different. Um, so Tip was Tip was a delight to write and very easy to keep in character. Um, Kiva, I've already touched on about her compassion, so I let a lot of that guide her voice and her being guarded and protective Um and, and, you know, that gets challenged a lot when there's a new character, a couple of new characters kind of arrive at the prison. Uh, Jaren and Nari are two main characters. Nari is a guard. And she's been there a little while and Kiva is a bit distrustful of her, but at the same time, Nari is not as uh, horrible as the other guards. She sometimes seems to stand up for Kiva, look after a little bit more than some of the others who might be a bit more uh, malicious. And so Kiva doesn't trust her at all, but slowly Nari kind of becomes less horrible and um and so Kiva has to sort of slowly let her walls down in that way as well um but Jaren who is this other who's an inmate who arrives like I think in like the second chapter or something and um and he's also a main character and mm. so Kiva towards him he is also he's not like Tip in that bubbly sense but he's a He's very wanting to get to know Kiva and she's very wanting to keep him away. So her <laughs> interactions with him are also really interesting for her voice to like have her, it brings out a bit more of a snarky, sarcastic side of her sometimes because, you know, she can kind of let that, any kind of humour that she's kind of kept inside for protective reasons kind of helps push him away. Um, so that's kind of Kiva's voice. To, re, to circle back on Nari and Jaren, Jaren, Jaren was interesting because you only get to know him through Kiva's eyes. Same with Nari, same with all of them. And so you kind of see him as she sees him. And at first he's just this annoying person who just won't seem to die. Not that she wants him to die, but she's expecting him to die very fast. And he's just kind of always there and he's always bothering her and she doesn't know why he won't leave her alone. Um, that makes him sound horrible. He's not at all horrible. Oh, no. I actually think he brings out in Kiva that dark humour that comes through eventually. And then they have that lovely sort of interplay where it's just sort of, you know, almost bagging each other out about different things. And it's a really great relationship. I really liked the way that developed. 
Oh, thank you. I think I think it comes down to he kind of challenges her. He challenges he her to pull her out of her shell. So much of this first book is Kiva learning to trust other people and learning that it's okay to let people in. And Jaren kind of, tip, if Tip is the little barnacle that attaches himself to her, Jaren is the person that draws her out of herself and tells her that it's okay to trust people. It's okay to let people in. And yes, okay, maybe bad things will happen, but that's life. And if it does, at least you'll then have people to get through those things with. And so Jaren's voice, um, to answer that question, he just, I knew... I mean, I read a lot of YA books and I, I write a lot of YA books and I just, there are certain things that I don't love to read as a reader and therefore I try to avoid writing as a writer. And so even though I know I'm writing teenagers, I try to, I try to avoid that teenage angst. And so I try to do a lot of that through the other characters. And so Jaron, um, I think he's, I can't remember how old he is. I think he's 19, 18, maybe. <laughs> 18, 19, I should remember my own character's age. He was 17 and I yeah, think he's I don't think years age, yeah I don't think Jaren's age is ever stated I think it's he's a year or two older than her yeah. it's kind of what it is um and so you know I wanted him to be mature but still fun and still young but at the same time have that kind of worldliness of you know we don't know why he's in the prison we don't know why he's sentenced there we do we know very vague details about him from Kiva's perception so she can tell that he is healthy she can tell that he's lived a reasonably good life until he was um, sent there he says a couple of things about her his family that make her think that maybe his family um uh kind of went against him and don't want anything to do with him and and um just a couple of things here or there that just you know that just hints for her to think about who is this person what did he do here? But one of the main rules at Zalandov is you don't ask another prisoner why they're in prison. And so she can't really say, hey, did you murder someone? <laughs> what <laughs> or, did you do? <laughs> yeah. Or are you here like me because you actually shouldn't be here? Like, so, you know, she always has to keep her guard up in that sense. So anyway, writing Jaron's voice was trying to hone in on that and who I wanted him as a character and knowing who where I wanted him to go in the future as well. So keeping him in character for everything that would come next, but bringing him to a place where he could be a voice in Kiva's ear, encouraging her, challenging her. Jaren is very smart. And I think within moments of meeting Kiva, he kind of had a pretty good idea of someone who'd been very isolated for a very long time, doing a very awful job. One of the first things Kiva has to do when a new inmate arrives at the prison is she has to carve a Z mark into their hand, into the back of their hand. It's a, It'll end up being a scar um, that makes them property of Zalandov. And so that's one of the first things that Kiva has to do to Jaren um, and and, you know, he is unconscious at the time, I believe, but, you know, he wakes up and he knows very quickly that A, she's healing him because he's arrived beat up and so she's stitching, like stitching up wounds. Um, but at the same time, she's also hurt him because that's her job. And so she is this uh, dual nature of personalities. And I think he knows very quickly that, okay, this is someone who, who actually could really use a friend and maybe isn't as awful as, you know, like he's probably a little bit too trusting early on. He is just suddenly in this death prison and he's like, hey, we can all be friends. And he's like, no, no, that's not that's not how it works here. Um, and, and it takes a little bit of time for him to kind of, you know, ground himself and realise I think he has a couple of altercations with other prisoners later on. I think maybe that's a bit of a wake-up call as well. Mm. He's not protected in any way. Um so all of that really does shape him and, and I guess I think the main point 
to your question is I, I want to give these characters three dimensionality. I want to give them flaws um, and I want those and I want to give them strengths and I want to give them weaknesses and all those things come into creating their voice. But then you have characters like Mosh and like he actually audibly, if we can use that word, has an interesting voice because he has like an accent when he talks and he, you know, I use that on page or tip, I should actually even say tip as a stutter, you know, like, so, you know, there are different actual craft things that you can use to bring across different voices. If we're talking about like the actual audible voice as well. So yeah, all these things you just kind of take into account. Um, And interestingly, like it has nothing to do with me because I don't rate the audiobooks, but with the audiobook narrator, she actually, she has to, she does her own things. And there's a couple of characters who like, so, because she's American, so a couple of characters have American accents, some she's given like English accents and Cockney accents and all these different things. It's so really interesting to see what she's done with some of the characters. And when I hear it now, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And other times like, whoa, whoa, wait, (laughs) hang on, what's going on there? That's not how I heard it in my head when I was writing it. (laughs) That's also the beauty of reading. Yeah. Everyone hears things, hears things hears, differently. Yep. And, and I love that. So yeah. I yeah. love that too. So you touched on craft then. Um, so I'd love to go into the sort of the plotting and outlining. The Prison Healer has such a rich, complex plotting, both the external, you know, conflict in the world outside Zalandov, and that, that's the sort of macro, then the conflict within the prison, then we're sort of zeroing in here. Then the trial by ordeal is another whole plot thread. And then Kiva's own journey and character arc, as well as all the other characters. Can you tell us your process for developing and or, or really managing all these elements in the writing itself? Are you a, a fast writer? Do you just get it all out or do you plan it first? How does that all work? I am a fast writer. I think I wrote this book it was either 26 or 28 days, so it was very fast. Wow, um, and it's not a short book. It's not a short book, no. And well done. Um, I mean, partly, like, this book was just bursting out of me. I'd, yeah. I'd, you know, I had, it was, I wrote it in that just straight after I'd visited the prisons so in the middle of 2019. Um, at the beginning of 2019, I released the final book in my Medoran Chronicles, which was, again, I said before, six books. And then at the end of 2019, I released the final book in my Whisper Duology. So I was in between releasing the two biggest books of my career at that point. Uh, the previous year, I'd released three books. And that was, so I was in this insane time that I hadn't actually had a chance to write anything new for a while. Um, it was been a lot of editing and a lot of working on things that had already been kind of built up to that point. Um, so when I had the chance to sit down and write, this just like, exploded out of me um and um and so to answer that question about you know how I handled it I have no idea I remember like I told you like so the prison the idea of the world came to me pretty clearly and I knew I wanted it to be I wanted to challenge myself um every time I write a new book or series I want to challenge myself and so with that you know I wanted I would normally go for an expansive kind of world and I was like I would love to set a book inside one place and to make a world out of that one place. And so that's what I did. I created this prison that has different areas. It has the tunnels, which we mentioned, it has like the quarry and it has like the lumbia and it has like this aquifer, which is this big underground water system. It has the infirmary and it has, you know, all these little places in amongst this one place. And I had to kind of build on that and make it interesting enough that people don't get bored to be essentially in the one setting. Um, but that was all at the beginning of it. And so that's all I had. I knew I wanted a character who'd been locked in this place and I knew I had the place. And so I just had to be like, oh, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and then it was like, 
I, I like as an author of fantasy largely like it's so hard to write magic guys like it's just it's <laughs> it's hard because it's if you let it it's it can be limitless you have to add boundaries you have to have and so I remember sitting at the beginning of the prison I'm like yes I'm just gonna have a fantasy world no magic and I was like oh, but I'd really like to have you know maybe just a little bit of magic like elemental magic over here and what if there's like some other magic and like and I just remember thinking can I do it? Can I do it? I don't want to do it. And I was like, but I've never done elemental magic before. So what could I do with that? And what if there's this like, and and then I started like researching, like, I don't know how I, I fell down a rabbit hole of like medieval punishments. Cause I'm like, well, she's in a prison. What kind of, what kind of things could she face? And um, what could the, what could some of the big actual challenges be? And, um, and I stumbled upon, Real world, our real world, all these documents about, um, not documents, all these articles about a thing called, that is called the trial by ordeal. And it was in our, you know, I can't remember, wow. the, like the medieval times for us. And so that was a lot of like the witch hunting kind of things where the trial would be like a trial by water and they'd try to like, where they'd try to drown them. And if they drowned, they were human. Human. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not um, a witch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So there was that. There's the trial by fire, which is when they burn people at a stake, you know. All the I mean, so. Uh, but anyway, so that kind of really, that really pushed me into thinking I would love to do like a magical trial by ordeal. What if I amped up the stakes and, and if, I, if I brought in these elemental magic elements and, and so there's a trial by air, a trial by water, a trial by fire and a trial by earth and how I might do those. Um, and in the midst of that, I was also researching prisons, like horrible prisons throughout our history. I remember reading this Amnesty International report on Tadma prison in Syria and it was like, it left me with nightmares. Like this is a real life current day prison and it's mm. just like, oh, oh, it was awful. Um, but then like also concentration camps and all those kind of horrible things, you know, all of that was shaping the world I was creating and helping me at the same time figure out how I might put these magical trials into it. And um, so all these things started to kind of shaped together in my head but there was still something missing and at that time I was like there needs to be you know okay yes I want this trial by ordeal I want this overarching plot this concept of there's these rebels who are fighting against the crown and who are trying to steal the um the 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 kingdom um and so how does that work in with Kiva Kiva's not a rebel um but the rebel queen is sentenced to Zalandov and she arrives at Zalandov and Kiva is tasked with keeping her alive or else Tip will die. So there's a few complications who get in there that mm -hmm. add the character depth of it, but then add to the plot. Um, and that drives Kiva to give her her agency to do what she has to do. But I also needed another element to actually be against Kiva directly. And so that's when there is this stomach sickness kind of plague thing spreading around the prison and as the healer she's the one who has to stop people dying so not only does she have to face this um this sickness she also has to keep tip alive she has this new prisoner jaren who is just always there and then she has this rebel queen who is very very sick who can't speak who can't um who can't see who can't sit up and who is suddenly you know uh, has to do this trouble ordeal and so kiva it's a bit of a spoiler, but it's written in the blurb, but Kiva takes her position um, in order to keep her alive, in order to keep Tip alive. So it's this convoluted thing of who is trying to save who and why and whose motives are what and why. And um, and then Kiva has to try and survive this completely unsurvivable thing. And so all these things mesh together in my brain and then just kind of, as I said, that just kind of all came out in a very short period of time and the book was born. <laughs> so so you've just write it. There's no 
sticky notes or charts on the wall or spreadsheets or anything like that. It's there just- is a whiteboard. There's a whiteboard. I have this process. I use Scrivener as a program um, to like keep track of like all my characters and everything and, and like even just the stuff like eye colour because you know you yes. look and you're like wait were their eyes blue or green I can't remember I can't make a note of it now um but and even like I have I have big things about the world just a little like because Scrivener is the best program for any writer uh, listening to this I cannot like I, I don't actually write in Scrivener I know most not most I know a lot of people who have Scrivener write in it um, oh, you just you, organize your world yeah, in that. and the so research and everything that all goes in as well. Everything is everything. in there. Everything yeah. is in, it's, it's like my, I don't know, it's like my mental happy place, but in a physical form on my computer. It keeps everything so organized and out of my head. And then I have a word document for the writing. So it's, so I can kind of switch back between them. I don't, I don't know why I think maybe because I started writing in my career on word before I ever learned about Scrivener and and the reason I moved to Scrivener was because at one point when I was working on the Doran Chronicles, I think I was the third book in and I had so many different word documents for all the different characters and all the different world things and all the different magic systems and all the different everything that my computer would just constantly crash like, <laughs> over and over. And then I was flicking through so many things. And it was just so hard. And that's when I was like, what can I get to help me organize this? And that's when I learned about Scrivener. And it just like, I could have cried. Like I just when I started using it, it was just, <laughs> such a relief to be like I can just flick between the tabs and it's all right there it's all Um, there I love it too that's so interesting though that you don't actually write in it so you don't organize chapters and have it all I think I don't know I have I haven't given this much thought but I think it's purely because I write so fast like I know a lot of people who use Scrivener for that purpose they they organize their chapters they have a plan for the next whatever they have all their outlines and everything and I don't use any of that and it's also honestly completely honestly I'm not wonderfully technologically proficient so I think the idea of learning how to use all the facets of Scrivener really (laughs) overwhelmed me at the beginning and I just thought I'll use it in the most basic way um and so I kind of still use it in the most basic way. Well, and to be fair, you have to export it out of Scrivener to send it to the publisher and then that because they send here and I'm yeah. like, I'm just as likely to lose half of it in the yeah. transfer. And, and um Because all the edits come back in Word, in don't they? In track changes, yeah. yeah. So um yeah, so I don't know. And I think then because then I also would edit in Word, um, at least until you get your past pages and everything, until the typesetting is done. So it's like, well, I think my poor little brain just handles it if it's all just in the one place. Yes, that makes sense, <laughs> especially when you're juggling the complex world, <laughs> worlds, yeah. I should say, of all your different series. So when you sit down to write a chapter or a scene of The Prison Healer, do you think about what that scene needs to achieve uh, before you actually start writing in terms of moving the story forward or increasing the tension or the conflict? What happens in your brain when you sit down to write? I feel like there's not a huge amount of thought process that goes into it. It probably isn't the answer that you want. I would say that what I actually try to do is a bit like a snowball falling down a hill. So what I, instead of sitting down to write a scene or chapter, I try to make sure that the previous scene or chapter ended at a point that it can roll straight on into the next one and build on that. Um, So a lot of my chapters, especially in the later books of this series, and I think in The Prison Healer too, um, a lot of the chapters will kind of end on a mini cliffhanger, which kind of makes you then want to jump straight into the next chapter so that you can find out, you know, like you'll get like a a sentence or a statement or or just like a, you know, bum, bum, bum kind of (laughs) feeling um, that as a reader makes you not want to stop 
there because you need to find out what happens next, hopefully. Um, but as a writer, that also helps keep me with the momentum um, and to know. So every day when I go into write whatever's next on that day, I always reread the last couple of paragraphs of the previous chapter. I don't tend to, I'm not an author who stops mid-scene or mid-chapter um, on one day. Like I'm not a nine to five author. I don't think, oh, five o'clock closing time. <laughs> I'm I'm a right into the the dead of the night if it means getting that particular scene out because I feel like if you're in that moment, you know, you, the voice is so clear in your head and the scene and the feeling and the emotion is so with you. And I don't like the idea of waking up the next day and having being of a different mind frame that might just like distort what I was working on then. So I will always go back, reread what I've just written the previous day and then roll straight on from there. And so sometimes that's a nice point and the previous chapter does kind of end it and they all went to sleep happily. And so you know that the next chapter is starting afresh and you kind of do like a big, big breath in. Okay. And what's happening today? Um, in which case on those days, I kind of treat every chapter a little bit like a mini book. I try to have like you know, if it's, a, if it's a chapter that doesn't roll straight on from a cliffhanger chapter, it's a moment where, you know, I'll have a, a moment where you're starting off at a nice point and then I'll build it up to whatever that scene is going to require and, like, there'll be almost a, like a climactic kind of, like, problem. And often I'll try and build it up until the end of the chapter so the next chapter can then go on from there. But if it is going to be, like, a an arc kind of thing, then I try and keep making like that. The thing about YA especially um, a lot of books, but YA in particular is the, the pace does have to be fast because our target audience has a short attention span. I mean, as a reader, I have a short attention span. I'm, I'll always pick a YA book. My brain just wants to get straight into the action and to get to know the characters. In general, with a YA book, you tend to know that you're going to get a lot of character development, a lot of action, a lot of adventure and straight into the story and into the meat of it. And um, so I try to keep that in my mind as I'm writing so that I make sure that I'm keeping people's attention. You know, teenagers have, you know, they want to be doing stuff. And, do. I, and so I get that. And I feel like that even as a non-teenager. Um, so I try in every scene I write and every chapter I write to have that. But the thing is, you have to also let your readers breathe. So there has to be slower moments. There has to be a lot of those action moments, but you know, there also has to be a lot of the emotional moments that kind of just tug you in and so those can be the slower softer moments but then there can just be a couple of moments that just kind of in between the action and the crazy crazy just go okay everything is okay take a breath eat this chocolate with that character while they're just <laughs> having some downtime and prepare yourself for what comes next so I think to answer your question it's just a it's like a almost an intuitive mental kind of awareness of knowing what you've just written of knowing what's ahead and then fitting in what you're currently writing to balance all of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I loved what you were saying about treating those non-cliffhanger chapters as a, an arc. And yep. this is a podcast. Lynette was doing big waves with her hands. So. Oh. <laughs> arcs, I arcs. I didn't even realise. <laughs> yeah, and, and now I'm doing it as well. Arcs, yeah. So <laughs> that's so useful. Um, do you ever sit down and, and think, oh, I'm not quite sure where to start? Or do you always have something? You always have an idea if you're, you know, in the shower or walking around going, yep, that's where I'm going to start the next chapter. Uh, no, I, I don't know if there's many days when I do know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I think I have to have the mentality of just write, just write. If it doesn't work out, go back, delete it, edit it, change it. But if you sit there, one of the, not one of, the question I get asked the most 
hands down the most um, is how do I deal with writer's block? And, uh, you know, there are so many different ways to answer that question. Sometimes you just need to get away from your computer. You need a fresh perspective. You need to go outside and breathe and exercise, see your friends, see your family. Stop beating yourself up about it because you kind of make it worse if you're just constantly thinking, why can't I write? What is this going on? What is going on here? Um, sometimes, you know, if you're a video gamer, play a video game. If you are a, um, if you like movies, that kind of thing, something that's going to open your creative um, brain in a way that isn't focused on your own creativity, but someone else's. For me personally, I will reread a book that I know that I love and I know that has inspired me and I know that speaks to me and a book that makes me think, I wish I could create something like this, not in character and plot form, but in the way that it makes me feel. Yes. I want to make other people feel. So that all really inspires me and helps get me back on track and gets me kind of amps up my motivation. Um, uh, and for me also, it's purely, it's not even a, a lack of, you know, it's not even a writer's block, it's a writer's lack of motivation. It is that getting distracted by social media, falling down, you know, the Pinterest rabbit hole, all these things that kind of steal your mind. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, all those things help. But at the end of the day, it is self-discipline and is making yourself right. Even if you hit a block, even if you hit a wall, you just have to write through it. So which circles back to your question and what I do is I, you know, if I don't know what I'm doing, I have to kind of accept, you know, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and I just have to start writing and and see if, if it'll work out. And, you know, nine times out of ten it will because I know my characters and I know my book, but there will be times when I just have to, you know, just keep writing and force the words out and it's a bit like shooting bamboo down your fingernails and it hurts and it's painful and you know it's terrible writing. You just are so aware that it is the worst piece of trash that has ever, you know, come to a screen and you just <laughs> have to keep writing it and then you'll you'll get through it and you'll get to a point where you're like oh okay cool I've hit my stride again I know what's happening now and then once you're through it and you can see where you've gotten to and where you're going you can go back and change it or delete it so that's that's to answer your question no I don't always know what I'm doing um <laughs> often I have no clue um but you know this is Part of, you know, writing, writing is beautiful and I love it. I love so many different parts of it. I, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else, but it's also so hard. Like there are days that you just want to tear your hair out. I think I love a quote by Ernest Hemingway and he says, there is nothing at all to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> I love that one too. Yeah. I sometimes say it's not rocket science, but sometimes it just feels like it. <laughs> it really does. It really, I mean... Yeah, especially if you're writing about rocket science. That's a double whammy. <laughs> Just bring some elemental magic in, fix that right up. <laughs> I mean, because it's totally relatable, right? I can oh, talk totally. my experience there. <laughs> <laughs> so you touched on, you know, going in and fixing things up, which brings us nicely to the question of editing. Can you take us through your editorial process for The Prison Healer? Firstly, do you edit as you go? How much editing do you put into that first draft? And then once it's sent off to your publisher, how does the editing process roll on from there? Well, the first book in the Prison Healer series was different to probably every other book I've done, including the second two books and every previous book. Um, I've released eight other books prior to this series. So the Prison Healer, because I wrote it so fast, I'm actually a really clean writer. Um, what happens when I write lot, like over a longer period of time is I have a terrible memory and I start to repeat a lot of things and because I forgot what I've written and whatever else. So that's one part reason why I write so fast is so that I remember what's happened in order to continue on. So I do really quite 
I write quite cleanly. So my own personal process is that I write the draft and then I go back and I reread the draft once and I'll pick out any kind of like nitpicky kind of typos or anything or might add a little like a paragraph here or there or clean up sentences or whatever. But it's usually a pretty solid draft. Um, now, at that point, I had an agent and she was an editorial agent. And so she and I went through it, I think, once together. So she uh, worked as an editor on it in a sense. And we... Um, there was a couple of scenes. She's, she was American. She is still American. <laughs> I just no look at my agent. So she's still American. Um, and because we were going for, until that point, I was mostly, I was really just an Australian um, author. But with her, we were going to aim for the global kind of reach with this book, um, which is what happened, which is amazing. But she came at it from an American perspective. And so one of the scenes, for example, um, she thought might be a little bit too brutal. Um, and so, you know, there was a, there's a scene towards the end where one of the characters is um, punished for something that they do and um, they get like whipped by the guard uh, guards and it's, and Kiva has to watch it and it's really quite this traumatic. So she wasn't sure if that might be a little bit too, for the American market at least, whether it might be a little bit too graphic. Um, and so I pulled that entire scene out, for example. That's probably one of the major things I did in that first revision was, and it was ended up being a kind of, it was then added as a paragraph as that, oh, this happened, because it's really integral to the plot, um, but it was a, you know, Kiva had to watch this and it was really awful kind of thing. Um, and then so I want to mention that, but I'll come back to that scene again in a second, mm. because there was also another scene that we added early on. We added, I added, but through her guidance. Um, and it was to kind of build up a little bit more of Kiva's relationship with her dead father, because her father was sent to prison with her um, and he died within a year of her arriving. And so she's dealing with the trauma of that, of knowing she's alone. The rest of her family, she has no idea how they are, where they are, what they're doing. Um, and so I think I added in a few more kind of like memory scenes in order to build up that relationship so that there was a bit more of a lasting impact there. So that was that's kind of the minor thing that can have a lasting impact um, that we worked on through those agent revisions. But then that scene at the end, um, I want to come back to that because interestingly, so I did take it out and I, you know, lost over it. Um, and then we went out on submission to publishers and um, it was snapped up really fast. It went in multiple auctions around the globe, which was so exciting. But as an author, I really rely on my gut and my gut instinct when it comes to writing. And the entire time it was on submission, I just kept thinking, you know, and I'm a, ter I'm a terrible author when it comes to this. I'm so, so there's this mantra, it's like, show, don't tell. And I tell so much in my life. <laughs> like I just, it's a natural fallback for me. I, so, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, we really should show and I do show a lot, but, um, but I also tell a lot and I'm just aware of it. It's just my writing style. And, um, and this scene, I just really, it really bothered me that I'd taken it out and it had gone from show to tell. And, and especially because it is such an emotionally, um, important scene, not just in that moment, but for everything that comes later in the later books, like to have that scene between those two characters, that horrific moment that they shared that would bring nightmares to them later and an emotional kind of attachment to just have that summed up within a paragraph, it just did not do them justice. And so the whole time this book was on submission, I just had that in my head and I was like, I kept thinking they're all going to hate it because that one scene is missing, <laughs> not that anyone knew about it. Um, but anyway, it went to submission, everything like that. I then ended up... Um, with these publishers. And so because I'm based in Australia um, and the American publisher was going to take lead on it, which would mean they'd be my, my lead publishers. But I really wanted to work with an Australian editor as well. So what we did was we joined up my Australian editor, who's at Penguin Random House, um, 
and my US editor. And so they both decided that they would be happy to work on edits together for this, which has never, you know, for me, never happened before. Um, and it, it does have the risk of becoming a little bit like too many cooks spoil the pot at sometimes, because if you have an opinion with one editor that the other opinion, that the other editor doesn't have the same opinion of it, it's like, oh, you know, who do I, what do I listen to here? Um, yeah, that's tough. It is tough, um, but, you know, so the edits came in the first round of edits, which was structural edits, and so it was talking about, um, you know, a lot of things like adding scenes, deleting scenes. There was never any need to actually change the structure of the book. There was a bit too much, um, there was, like, a bit of, like, stuff that I pulled out because it was too, like, so, for example, I think when Kiva, the main character, volunteers to do this trial by ordeal, originally that was probably... I don't know, maybe 20 pages later. And so we really wanted to get that under the 100-page mark. Um, so just sort of shortening and trimming and stuff at the beginning and, and building that pace up again because, again, it's YA, so we want to get into the action faster. So things like that. But during that edit, I thankfully was able to talk to these editors about that scene at the end and say, look, this is really bugging me. Like, it's my, my gut instinct is saying that this is really important. Can I, you know, I know that this might be on the side of a little bit too brutal, but the rest of this book is also kind of brutal anyway. So, you know, um, and especially because they asked me to add in, um, up until that point, I hadn't, you know, talked about how horrible the guards were and how awful this prison is, but a lot of that was telling and not showing. And so they suggested I added a scene where we could see that. And it's a really awful scene. Even I know, awful, I know which scene like, you're talking about. <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is pushing a line. Surely this is worse than like yes. to my thinking. I mean, nothing happens in it, but it's the way that it's, it's written implied. and the way that aware of like, it's, it's so implied, like mm. you said, and um, and that implication is a horrible, horrible implication. And I'm sitting there, like, surely they're not okay with this, like my editors. And then, you know, I'm like, how can they, how can this be okay when, like, this scene that I pulled out that they've never read is, like, a different kind of horror, but it's, like, it, it was more physical horror than implied, you know, like, anyway. So, um I waited and they were fine with the new scene. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and see if I can sneak this one back in because to me it's really important. And um, and they loved it. They thought it really amplified, you know, everything. And I was like, okay, that makes me feel so much better because I just, you know, I when you when you have that instinct as a writer, you you know, you would know this that you know it's hard to chat to. You're like, am I just being protective of a darling that doesn't need to be there? You know, the saying, kill your darlings, is this something that I just really loved but it isn't necessary? Or is this actually necessary? Um, so that was really, you know, really great and I'm so glad that that scene got to be returned because it is so important. Yeah. Um, but so things like that, the editing process, you know, that's how it worked. There's a lot of compromise, a lot of give, a lot of take, a lot of change, a lot of... Um, you know, everything that happens like that. We did two rounds of structural edits and it goes off to copy editing and then the copy editing comments are always really interesting because that's when a lot of, like, Australian gets turned to American. So, like, you know, um, I'm sure there was a lot of examples of the prison healer, but I remember in my Whisper series um, when I wrote A Punnet of Strawberries, the copy editor was like, what's a punnet? <laughs> what do you mean, what's a punnet? What do you call the things you put strawberries in? And they're like, a pint? Like you, a we, pint? What? It's ice cream. Like, and we don't even call it ice cream. It's like I know beer in Lo Lord of the Rings. Like, I don't know. It was just. It's so interesting to see those little things that the copy editor finds and like the discrepancies and stuff. And then, yeah. And so by that stage, by the time you're through the main structural edit rounds, it kind of gets a lot easier. There, it's just the the questions from the copy editor and then the proofreading and all that sort of stuff. But that was essentially 
kind of how the editing process worked for that. Yeah, yeah. So coming back to the series question, did you plan for this to be a series, The Prison Healer, when you started writing? Yes, I always knew it would be a trilogy, um, at least in my mind. Um, and thankfully, that's what the publishers bought it as, um, which was very fortunate at the time because sometimes a publisher might just buy a first book and like, let's see how this goes. But I sent through a, a full synopsis of the series when we um, submitted, which... <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Nothing that happened in the second or third book really ended up happening in the book. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> it started that way. The second book started, you know, when I went into writing the second, it was like, right, crack my knuckles. I've got this. I know exactly what to do. And I was so proud because, like, prior to this series, I haven't really been much of a plotter. I've been more of a pantser. And so, but I knew I, you know, I had these ideas written down and I had it exactly as it would be. But as I was writing the second book, a couple of new twists kind of hit me and I was like, oh, oh, I like that and I like the way that direction could go and so I might just tweak this just a little bit and by the end of that book I was like, well, half of what I wrote is probably maybe slightly <laughs> similar. And so coming into the third book, which I've just written and just finished the second round of um, edits on, you know, I had to warn my editors at the, when I sent it off to them and I'd be like, don't bother reading the synopsis I sent you because nothing, 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 except for the character names, nothing is the same. And that's purely because so much changed in the second book. Um, but I think publishers kind of expect that. I think they, I, I think, think so. they, yeah, I think they like to get that synopsis as an idea that you are forward thinking um, and you are aware that as a series, that has the stakes have to get higher and that you're aware of some ways that that might happen. But I think they accept that, yeah, okay, that's, that's not going to actually be what happens. We'll see where it goes. How do you know when an idea is a series and can be sustained over a whole series? I think, like, I think probably the best example I can give you for this is from my Whisper duology. And so when I went into writing Whisper, I thought it would be a trilogy. I was like, I feel as though I have a vague feeling of this as a, as a trilogy. But when I finished writing the first book, um, it was such a short, sharp writing style that I thought, yes, I could turn this into a trilogy, but if I, if all the stuff that I want from the second book gets spread out over two more books, it's not going to be as tight and it's not going to be as sharp and it's, you know, it'll be fine, two fine books, but I want one good book, you know, one, you know, one book that does the series justice. And so that's when I was like, this needs to be shorter. It needs to just be two books. Um, but until that moment, you know, I kind of, I guess I finish the first book and then I decide. Um, and so once I finished The Prison Healer, I knew the ending of the second book. So <laughs> if that makes sense. So by the yeah. time I finished the end of the first book, I knew where the second book would end. And I knew that that wouldn't be the end of the series. Um, I knew that there would have to be at least one more book. And writing the third book, there was a point when I was halfway through and I thought, oh, oh, oh. There is so much that still needs to happen. This might need a fourth book. But by that stage, I was contracted on a three books. And so I was like, oh, I don't know how they're going to be okay with that. Um, and so thankfully, it's like the most epic book I've probably ever written. But wow. it's all in one book. And so I'm really excited for that book to come out. Um, that's The Blood Trader. And I think it comes out next year. So, how yeah, exciting. that was terrifying. Um, but with the Medora Chronicles, this is the most stupid answer I'll probably ever give. But I purely, when I went into writing that book, it's the first, Akane is the first book, and it's the first book I ever wrote. And um, I never intended for it to get published. I never intended for anyone to read it. But I remember sitting down and starting, I was like, you know what? If I'm going to write a series, Harry Potter is seven books, Twilight is four books, you know, Vampire Academy, I think is five books. So, and I went through all the different series that were really popular at the time. I remember thinking, I'm going to do five books. Five books sounds good. I can't sounds think good. of any other. Yeah, I was like, I can't think of any other five book series. So that's, 
That's good. And so it did end up being five books, but then I added a novella collection, so it kind of made it six books in the end anyway. So there was no, like, actual plotting reason for it. It was just, this sounds like a nice idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's take the character arc. So we've got Kiva's story in The Prison Healer, and then she sort of goes on a bit of a journey and she, she comes out of herself a bit and she discovers within her that she can be a little bit more open to people. And then there's that compelling, amazing twist at the end, which I cannot talk about, but people, you just have to read the book to find out what it was. And then, so with the next book, The Gilded Cage, are you then saying, well, now what, what do I need for Kiva's next part of her journey to be in terms of her personal development? Yeah, I think, I mean, given the ending of The Prison Healer, it was extremely complicated because I had to dive deep into Kiva's psyche and to decide who I wanted her to be next because I could have... You know, I could, uh, there's a few different directions I could go in. And um, and so I had to decide who I wanted her to be, if I wanted her to keep that compassion that she had for so long. And, and that's so intrinsic to who she is. And it was really important for me that she stays in character as we know her. Um, so I think it had to come back to a different kind of question. And that was, what do I want her to achieve in this book? And um, not from a like a like a physical goals perspective, but from an internal goals. And yeah. so I mentioned before, I mean we both did that so much of the prison healer is Kiva learning to trust other people um, and her learning to let down her walls and her learning that it's okay um, you know to let other people in. But so much of the gilded cage is Kiva having to learn to trust herself and to trust her own judgment and to trust that what she might think is right or wrong, you know, to trust that intuition within her. And um, and that's really difficult given the situations that she finds herself in and the people that she finds herself around. And so, you know, there is, um, I think, probably the hardest part of this book was that she comes across naive a lot of the time, but that's purely because the decisions, the decisions she has to make are based on 10 years of being imprisoned and not having to make these kind of decisions before. And, you know, ultimately she is a teenager. Yeah. Um and so these questions are this battle of wills within her and this emotional trauma of, of trying to figure out what what is right and what is wrong and how to reconcile them when they may or may not go against everything she always believed. So I had to hold on to that. There is, there's going to become a point where someone is going to lose like it's and someone she cares about so there is no winning for her so it's her decision as to who is going to hurt the most and how she can sort of deal with that fallout kind of thing and who whose side she'll be on and um and there is no winning for her and so her having to trust her own instinct is what kind of guided yeah. that decision yeah. <laughs> now we have some questions from listeners joe asked do you always have a target audience in mind for each book do you think I'm writing this as a YA crossover, or do you leave all that to your editors and marketers? Uh, I'm asking this from the perspective of a YA adult fantasy categorization at the library and bookshop level, which gets tricky. Often libraries, in particular school libraries, will make a fuss about swearing and sex scenes, but bookshops will still shelve Sarah J Maas and J Kristoff in the YA section regardless. Do you find you censor yourself as you write or do you just write what you want to write and let the bookshops and libraries decide? I mean, it's a really, it's a great question and it's a really like involved question as well. And I know that like J Kristoff and Sarah Maas would be the first people to be like, why are you shelving our books in YA? I mean, they, they just, they're like, this is, I mean, J in particular is often like, this is not a YA book, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah. I think 
the categorization is purely for, you know, the, for booksellers and for librarians. I think a really good example here is the new adult um, category, which is a lot of a lot of YA is reading up these days. The characters are a little bit older. There is more swearing. There is more sex, and so it's not quite YA in the sense of that twelve to 16 year old category it's more like these characters are 18 19 um and they're doing more mature things but there is no real new adult category like it's been a bit of a gray area for so yes. that's where like sarah's and jay's books would fit into that kind of thing um and so they're they're still written with that fast paced high character high action adventure drive and therefore they're being i wouldn't say they're being marketed as why i think marketers like you know Sarah's example, her um, A Court of Thorns and Roses series, they brought out a whole new heap of rebranding. They changed the covers to make them more adult as those books got more adult, but still they're being put in YA um, genre areas in, in books in bookstores and stuff. And Jay, you know, like, again, similarly, there's that grey area. His characters might be teenagers, but the content of the books are absolutely not, yeah. um, you know, YA books. And so... Um, yeah, as 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 an author, I don't really, I don't think about that in the sense of where my books will sit on a shelf purely because I know what I write and I know I'm not going to put in a heavy sex scene. I know I'm not going to um, put in a, a like you know a lot of like the more explicit swearing. Um, I know you know that's just that's purely just because that's the way I write. Yeah. Um, even if I was to write an adult fantasy book, you know. And like to move straight out of YA into you know adult adult, I still don't even think I would have those things, um, which would be really then interesting if I would then be categorised into YA. But I mean, again, Sarah wrote Crescent City, which is actually an adult fantasy, and it's I was at Big W walking through um, the book section yesterday, and it was in the YA section. And Crescent City is just not oh it's not goodness. YA. Like it's no one has marketed that from at from the beginning. So this question, the categorisation and the, and the genres really is just for where it can go on a shelf um, and that it's, it's needed in that sense because you can't have a, a chaotic bookstore where, you know, everything is everywhere and no one knows how to find anything. But it is also just something that I, as an author, I don't think about. I have an awareness in my head of, of I mentioned before in the editing part, you know, of where is the line to not cross, you know. So this world of the prison healer is set in a prison and there are things that I could have put on page but I chose not to because they are, it's, that would have been too explicit. You know, it would have, there are implications of things, but I would never show those things. Um, interestingly, coming into the third book in this series, The Blood Trader, um, it's the first book in this, like this series has a lot of triggering things, um, but they're not so horrifically triggering that as, as the, my publishers or my editors or, or I needed to have kind of trigger warnings on it. Um, if readers want those, they can find them online, but it didn't need like a mark on the book. But coming into the third book, I actually opened it with a note from me to readers saying, if you've come this far, you'll know that this series has some dark themes, but coming into this book, they're just a little bit more. <laughs> so, you know, know your triggers, coming yeah. to these might be triggered. And again, there is nothing horrific on page, but there's a lot more mental um pain I guess I would say in that third book a lot more emotional fallout a lot more things that some people just might be a little bit more sensitive towards um, especially teenagers because in the back of my mind I always have to remember I am writing to teenagers like yeah. a lot of my demographic is adults like that's just the way it is like as an adult I read YA and you know a lot of the people who read my books are adults but I am writing to teenagers so I'm always going to want to try and protect them as much as I can and um, 
even if even if that's in ways of uh, so my novella collection for the Noran Chronicles uh, deals with a lot of mental health. There's a there's talk about a suicide of a family member in there. There is um, you know and some and there's a death of a, a parent. There's a few things like that. So at the end of that book, I actually have there's a list of um, like helplines that you can call if you were triggered by anything in that book. So like um, Lifeline and and all the different kind of you know. Um, people who you can talk to if something yeah. like that upsets you so it's stuff like that it's just being aware of who I'm writing to is important in the sense of knowing what lines not to cross but it doesn't stop me from writing um anything that you know if I was ever to cross those lines then, then that would be a different conversation with my publishers about where the book would sit um and again it wouldn't stop me from writing it it would just be then talking about how they how they essentially would deal with where that goes and how it's then who it goes to so i mean even just in the small things like the prison healer if you go to like the dimmick's website i think it says 14 plus you know whereas my medoran books would say 10 plus or 12 plus or something it's a hard question to answer because so much of it is outside of me yeah um, but you but or you can yeah you, you've answered it from your perspective in that it doesn't change your writing style and your writing style has your audience in mind. But I take my hat off to you because that must be such a balance because on the one hand, you want to bring up issues that teenagers can relate to and be relatable, but not go so far as to be completely triggering and traumatic for them. Exactly. I yeah. think the main thing is I try to nurture people through it. So the, the Prison Healer, if we were to put that in a nutshell, is it is a dark book, but my whole point of that book is to show that there can still be light in the darkest of places. There can still be hope. There can still be goodness. And so that's what I want people to take away from the book is that even in the worst of places, and if we use this as a metaphor, even in the worst of situations in our own lives, even no matter what we're going through, no matter what the darkness is, no matter what we are struggling with, no matter how hard life gets, there is always goodness and there is always hope. Um, so to never forget that. And that is that is kind of what I try to guide especially the teenagers towards. And so there will always be in my writing, there'll always be that nurturing, that comfort, that protection. But at the same time, you don't want to baby them because you can tell that like, this is a death prison. And I can't just say, oh no, she got a slap on the wrist. Like that's not, that's not, people will just kind of be like, yeah, that's, this is, this stinks. You know, like yeah. not, you gotta, you gotta be as real as you can, but also as protective as you can. And yeah try to juggle that as 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 well as possible speaking of young people penelope janu has sent in a question she says lynette is an inspiration to younger writers because she's made a career out of writing successfully full-time at what point did she have the confidence to write full-time and what is her advice to other younger writers who'd like to write fiction as a career well that's a loaded question okay um <laughs> I'll do it in two parts. The first part about at what point did I have the confidence to write full time? <laughs> I don't know if I have confidence at all. No. <laughs> um, so I, it was actually accidental. I was coming into this second book of my Midoran Chronicles. I was in no way able to financially um, handle, you know, um, writing full time at that point. Um, but my actual job uh closed <laughs> so i'd been there for five years i think and so my job it changed um, from a photography studio to a personal development company and then it was slowly shutting down from that and so went with the changeover i actually started writing um with for them uh with blogs and and interviews and stuff like that which was really cool but I, my heart wasn't in it because it wasn't creative writing it was interviewing people and more a journalistic thing and i just didn't 
enjoy it. And I found that it made me stop enjoying my fiction writing as well, because if I was writing in my day job in a real, like, real life kind of thing, and then I got home at night and I wrote in a creative kind of thing, I was kind of written out by then, like, and, and switching my brain between the two, I just didn't enjoy. Um, so when the work closed down, I decided, okay, I'm going to give myself a year. I have enough savings to give myself a year to see if I can actually do this. And it was a big risk. Like it was such a huge risk. Um, but I was at a point in life when I was able to take that risk. And, um, and I thought, you know, if I give myself those 12 months, at least I have an end date for looking for a new job if I need a new job. And, um, it just worked out that I didn't, by the time that 12 months was over, I was getting a lot of, I still wasn't really getting, um, I wouldn't say I had enough like royalties or anything coming in to help me survive purely by the books. Um, but I was getting a lot of invitations to schools and a lot of invitations to events and they all, you know, they, they pay. Well, at that point um, I was, you know, published enough that they would pay me for it. And so that really, that was enough of an income for me. Yeah, that's um, great. So now thankfully timing wise, especially with COVID, I'm able to survive, you know, very you know fine without needing those events which mm. <laughs> since the last year thankfully <laughs> yeah i've been very blessed i know it's not the case often in australia and i am the first person to warn any aspiring authors not to quit their day jobs because it is very very hard especially in this country i think i haven't looked at the stats for a while but i think a couple of years ago when i was looking at the stats and wondering if i could survive i think the average australian author makes like an average, but like higher than average, Australian author makes about fourteen thousand a year, um, yeah. seven to fourteen thousand a year on just on this. And you know, if you have a family, if you have anything, you know, it's just yeah, you can't live on that. <laughs> you can't live on that. Um, you know, I don't even know if you can these days. I don't know if you can get your car insurance. No. <laughs> But yeah, so now thankfully I'm I'm you know able to do that. But you know it's not something I would advise unless you were really confident and and I mean or unless you have I know a lot of authors who maybe have a partner who is able to you know carry that weight and give them that time they need and and like I didn't have that so I was just fully able having to figure out if I could do it on my own. But if you do have that, then that's great. Give yourself the chance, but do it carefully and. Um, yeah, and yes. just and monitor it, monitor and see if you need to stop doing that. So, yeah, yeah. so, um, so for younger writers who'd like to write fiction as a career, number one tip: don't give up your day job. Don't give up your day job. No. Um, yeah, uh, but the other—I mean, oh, I feel like this is kind of the hard advice to give, but I think also be aware of the reality that um, that it may not happen, and I say that in a sense that make sure it's what you want make sure because because at the end of the day if you don't ever get a publishing deal if you love what you do that's all that matters you know if you love writing if you can't imagine a world where you're not writing if it is your dream to write then it doesn't matter you know if if that never happens in the wide scale sense you there are so many avenues to you now there's self-publishing there's so many different online ways to make people like have access to your book but if you know if if your dream is to write, then write and write for yourself because the thing is, if you do get a publishing offer, it, and it only takes one, that's the thing, it takes one yes and all the no's mean nothing. I mean, I sent out hundreds of, of queries to my first book before, you know, it was rejected for years and years and years before I was given an offer. Like this is all part of the process. 
um, and it only took one yes. Um, but once that yes happens, you will never write another book without having that fear of expectation on you. So those, any book you write before you have a publishing deal is just for you. And it's such a beautiful feeling. You can, you can throw it out if you hate it or you can nurture it and love it if you don't. But after that point, once you're on a contract, you're always going to be like, is this good enough? Are people going to like it? Are my publishers going to like it? What if it doesn't sell? There are so many stresses and pressures and you have to, <laughs> you have to silence those voices. And doing that is really hard but it means you will never have another book that is just yours. So my advice to young authors is enjoy the process. Do it because you love to do it because you can't not do it. And anything else is a bonus from there. And also what you were saying too about the bum glue and the discipline and just sitting, even if it's, if you're not feeling it, just sit down and the words will come. Yeah. And also from a practical level, make sure you read a lot, read and read and read and read and read because that's how you like I don't have a degree in creative writing I never took a class in creative writing I you know the first workshop I ever went to I taught like the first writing (laughs) workshop and I remember it so clearly because I'm like I really I just remember I had I was I must have still been working at the time and I just because I remember thinking I need to go and find a writing workshop before I actually have to do one and I just didn't have the time to do it and I remember going you know I remember being at the front of the room like Oh, I hope no one turns up because I just didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. Never, you know, anyway. So that was, um, that went fine, thankfully. And yeah. Oh, well <laughs> but, done. That must have been, um, <gasps> yeah, terrifying on a whole other level. Oh, yeah. I mean, the point is just read because I, you know, if you read, you, you get an idea of what's good, what's not good, and also what you like. And so the reading is important. Actually, Penelope did also ask what you read. Um, do you read outside YA? Yeah, I mean, I like to keep up with what's happening with YA um, because, you know, it's important to see how it's changing. And it really has, especially in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of change in the YA books. You read a YA book that was released five years ago compared to YA book that's released now. And it's just such, it's not even subtle differences. There are massive differences in content and in language and in, in you know, even in explicit scenes, what's right. allowed now compared to what was allowed then. Um, so, and I remember like, yeah, just 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 the shifts are so huge. But I also, you know, for myself, for uh, like, just I I also need to get away from YA sometimes. I need to, you know, if I if I'm having a, a rough time, I need to read a nice contemporary romance that's just like a you know feel good. You know, it's going to end well. You know, it's not going to have a cliffhanger ending, which so many books do. Or a oh, death prison. <laughs> no death prisons in romance. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so, you know, I, I do love that. I love a good thriller sometimes. It'll just sort of like, you know, keep me on the edge of my seat. Um, you know, I was going to say too, because with your book, um, as I was reading it, I thought, I wonder if Lynette reads romance because there's ro- elements of romance, there's elements of thriller, there's elements of crime, you know? Yeah, well, that's it. I feel like if you read widely, like I, I don't ever really want my own writing to be put in a box. I don't yeah. want to be just just a, um, a formulaic writer, you know, I think there's a big risk of that for so many writers and especially in YA, there's, there's such, there's, there's a formula, you know, you know it, like you read a book and within the first 10 pages, you know exactly how the book is going to end. And so I try to break out of that mold. There's, there's a few twists in the prison healer and like one of them is just so obvious for the entire book. And I've used that knowing that people will clue on very quickly about what it is, um, but I've used that as a distraction from the other twist so that you're too busy focusing on the, I know what's going to happen here, that you don't think outside of what else might happen here. And so, you know, I think a lot of that, I learned that from thrillers where it's, or like the crime ones when you're like, I think that's the bad guy, but it could be that person or it might be this person, or maybe it's the one that everyone, it's always going to be the person that, you know, 
that everyone likes and you know, whatever. Um, so that. I don't know what it says about me, but I didn't see that twist coming either. Oh, <laughs> so I, got- I didn't want you to see it, but I thought some <laughs> like some of the people who read a lot in this yes. genre might be aware that, okay. Um, it, but, you know, like, my, you know, I, I don't want, like a lot of people have been surprised by it and that's the aim. Yes, but it, I got the double whammy. <laughs> good. Well, it's the, it's the lower, like it's the lower twist like it's the it's the less subtle twist I right guess I could say. um whereas the funny thing is if you ever went back into a reread of this the other twists are just that now that you know them yes. you'll see all the foreshadowing oh, and everything oh, that through. but I think I'll have to reread it <laughs> <laughs> um finally did the writing of the prison healer teach you anything new about writing craft or process what did this book teach you I still feel like, I mean, it happened so fast. And my first book came out in 2015. So I still, you know, it's not like it's been over 11 years or whatever. It's just, so in my brain, I'm still so inexperienced and there's so much I still need to learn. And there's, there's always going to be things I learned. So this book, I think this book, I was really um, privileged, I guess, to work with my two editors, um, my American editor, my Australian editor, who just had a wealth of knowledge, both of them, you know, um, editorial directors so they're like the top of the top of, of of everything that they could be and they just have so much experience and they really glean so much from them um I'm one of those kind of authors who sucks things in like a sponge and I always want to learn more and I want my next book to always be my best book um and I then I want my next book after that to always be my best book I always want to try and improve not just for like the sake of my readers but because I want to improve my craft um so the prison healer I think especially over the course of this series i learned a lot about um less is more i guess like in some ways like i'll go back and reread my medoran chronicles which is my first books and i'll you know i'll say something in three sentences that could have been said in three words you know like and it's fine that was the writing style then and it really kind of immersed you into it and made you really feel everything but in the prison healer you know to keep it to keep those intense moments especially in those really thriller kind of moments and in those like high stakes moments if you use your writing it's not just it's it's a tool that you can use you can have short sharp choppy sentences that can actually give emotion and give that urgency or you can have a nice longer lyrical kind of prose that might be a really beautiful emotional kind of soft moment and so learning how to use different words in different ways and different sentence structure um you know I really enjoyed that and and a lot of it is intuitive but I really got to hone in on that in these books in a way that I hadn't in any other of my previous books so um yeah, and especially in the second book, for example, I had to cut 30,000 words because the word count was too much. And oh, so that, that was really challenging for me because I am a longer writer, um, but it just was, you know, and it was a really hard comment because my editors were like, everything in this book is really, really needed, but we need you to bring this word count down. And I was like, but that doesn't help me tell me what to take out, you know, like, so I had to, I had to fine tooth comb every single sentence and pull out every unneeded word. And um, and that was really incredibly challenging. But then going into writing the third book, it meant I had a, a sharper eye for what was and what wasn't needed. So I think I'm always going to be learning and I really hope I'm always learning. And these books have just taught me so much about 
about about how to write and how to write better, but also make me realize well, I'm still not a good writer. Like I don't mean that in like a oh, self just mean you know like no you're always well I will always be my worst critic and I will always see yes. the flaws in my own writing and I think that's just part of being an author sometimes and I'm okay with that. Um, and it also it, I like that because it means I'm always going to keep trying and so that's. You know, that's kind of important to me. Well, you're a wonderful writer. And it says right here on the back of the book, Australia's number one best-selling YA author. So uh, a lot of people would disagree with you about being a terrible writer, oh, Thank you. <laughs> um, tell us what's what's happening now. So you've got Gilded Cage is just about to come out, then the third book next year. So what, what's next in the works for you? Oh, I have no idea. I think when you come to the end of a series, you just you have kind of a blank canvas. And so I have a lot of ideas rolling around in my head. But the thing about this series has come out really fast. We had like an accelerated release. So it was six monthly releases and it's just, um, and in a pandemic time, it has not been ideal. Like that was decided before, you know, at the end of 2019, before COVID hit. And so um, that's been really hard. It's been really hard on the publishing industry um, as a whole. It's been really hard on me as an author, as like for personal, you know, for every, for the same reasons everyone yeah. has. Yeah. Um, very hard on our little creative minds to deal with everything and so I think you know um I think for a bit I just need to give my brain a little bit of a space to kind of I talked before about my advice to young to wrong writers is to you know write the book that you you know that means something to you that speaks to you that you have no pressure on yourself and you just love to write and I'm coming into a space where I could do that I'm not on a contract I am deliberately not hopping on a contract at the moment because I just want whatever I write next to be something that kind of comes from my heart and then once it's done I can then go through the process all over again so um so yeah I'm just going to take a little bit of time to be I guess gentle with my creative mind and um I think a lot of authors myself included have really skated burnout in the last last little while and so I just I think when you're aware of that you have to kind of just be so careful because it can have such longer lasting uh, effects if you're not on that so I need to monitor that be careful of that and then write just from my heart and that's what I'm going to do next well that is a wonderful note to end on Lynette thank you so much for talking to me today there's so much great stuff in there and I think the writers who are listening are going to get so much out of it so thank you you are welcome thank you so much for being a great host oh it's my pleasure there you go the fabulous Lynette Noni please do go and check out Lynette's website at lynettenoni.com and follow her on her socials where she shares videos and giveaways and the most amazing fan art. I would love to have Lynette's fans. They're incredible. Lynette is brilliant at the marketing side of being an author. So her website and socials are really worth checking out if you're an author in the same space to really see how it's done. And of course, The Prison Healer and all of her novels are available wherever you buy your books. There's a link on the website, writersbookclubpodcast.com, where you'll also find the show notes for today's episode. Now to our October book. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with one of my favorite authors, Jessica Detman. Jess writes the kind of engaging, warm and funny novels that I just love. And she's just as warm and hilarious in real life. And you should all immediately go and follow her on Instagram and Twitter. We are going to be diving into Jessica's latest novel. This has been absolutely lovely. What a great title, hey? Let me tell you a bit about it. Molly is a millennial home organizer about to have her first baby. Obviously, her mum, Annie, will help with the childcare. Everyone else's parents are doing it. But Annie's dreams of music stardom have been on hold for 35 years. 
caused by childbirth, then buried under her responsibilities as a mother, wage earner, wife, and the only child of ailing parents. Finally, she can taste freedom. As Molly and her siblings gather in the close quarters of the family home over one fraught summer, shocking revelations come to light, and everyone is forced to confront the question of what it means to be a family. This Has Been Absolutely Lovely is a story about growing up and giving in, of parents and children, hope and failure, bravery and defied expectation, and whether it's ever too late to try again. Sounds great, doesn't it? I've read it twice now. I really recommend it. Um, Before becoming a writer, Jess worked for many years as a book editor. So I'm looking forward to getting her insights into the process from both the writing and the editing perspective. Now I'm giving away a copy of this fabulous novel. So head over to the Writers Book Club Instagram and Facebook accounts to enter. The entries close on October the 7th. Thanks again for joining me this month. I've been getting some lovely feedback from you about these chats, saying that you're getting a lot out of the podcast and it's really helping with your own writing. And this makes me very happy because it's exactly why I started the podcast. Please feel free to leave a rating or review over on Apple Podcasts as I believe it helps other writers and readers to find it and hopefully it'll help them too. Last but certainly not least... This podcast was recorded on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Have a great month, everyone, and happy writing.